Today I'm joined by Oli Debu, the Michelin-starred chef famed for stripped-back fine dining. Oli has in the past worked at Le Manuel Quatre Saisons, Hibiscus, Noma and The Fat Duck. That before opening his own restaurant, Debu, in 2012. He closed Debu in 2017 and in 2018 opened Hyde to critical acclaim. Hyde was awarded a coveted five stars in the Evening Standard GQ Restaurant of the Year, as well as a Michelin star, all within six months of opening. Oli, um, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. So it's great to see you. I want to start by asking you how you got into, um, into cooking. got into cooking just through love of food, which is, I guess, the purest, most honest uh, reason. Um, always loved to eat as a kid and like most children had a sweet tooth and so it was a natural progression for me I guess not just from eating a slice of cake to learning how to make one so that's how it came about and then as I grew up there's more and more media coverage with cooking to the point now that it's probably overly saturated but as I grew up the food scene in London was was rapidly improving and similarly there was more and more coverage on TV so uh, that fueled my interest, and and uh, yeah, eventually I, I managed to make a career out of a hobby. Well, yeah, that's the best career, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Am I correct in saying you were inspired by your grandmother, and she was a great cook? Yeah, so she was. Uh, my grandmother was um, was very good. When I say wartime generation cook, so back when there were proper tea times and. Uh, it was real old-fashioned English cooking, but things were done properly. She was a, a housewife her whole life and dedicated a good amount of that time to making things from scratch. So things like egg custard tarts or pastries, uh, you know, pies with uh, suet crust, whatever it may be. So she wasn't extravagant, extravagant cooking by any means, but it was a sort of humble British cooking. And then on my dad's side of the family, so uh, his uh, his mum, my, my grandmother, was was uh, was Italian and lived in Florence. And she, again, really good home cooking, very rustic. And I stayed with her when I was fifteen. And actually, my first job was in a was in a trattoria in Florence. They had amazing produce. Again, very simply done. It was the it was the type of restaurant that you dream of finding on holiday. Uh, so yeah, fifteen years years old was my first holiday job there. I'm just thinking your cooking is so different to kind of what you grew up with. Where <laughs> yeah. did that transformation come from? Yeah, um, I think it, like, cooking is obviously different to what what my grandmother's both both made or what my or my mum made, and uh, I guess that's where all the artistic embellishment can can come into play. That you can that you can bring to the table, pardon the pun, at a restaurant. You know, the thing that elevates restaurant food from domestic food is that that theatre, that sort of sexiness, but also I think the, the purity of flavour. And I think stylistically I try to be true to each each ingredient or its integrity or I question why we like something and then look to elevate those qualities in a very organic manner. So I think that... The style of cooking has, has definitely, for me, evolved over the years, but it was always something that um, I like to think has had 
had its own signature. Um, people might like my food less or more than other styles or other chefs in the same way that certain people have a inclination, certain artists over others. Um, but I think having a signature uh, to the food is a, is a compliment in itself. And it's something that I'm very proud of when I look at the dishes we did at Dubu or do at Hyde. You can identify them straight away. I think when you eat them as well, there's a certain lightness or flavor profile in, in my food that I'd like to think is, is true to us. I used to block book at Dubu. <laughs> you were one of those. Were <laughs> it's like, okay, can I have this Saturday night, the following Saturday night, two? Yeah. yeah. No, no, no. I, I always appreciated that and to get as a compliment. I mean, at one point, we're fully booked for a year in advance. So it was slightly bizarre because. Back then, people used to only do three-month booking windows, and then everyone would try and get a table, you know, on a Monday at 9 a.m., uh, the first Monday of the month or whatever it is. I remember thinking, you know, sod that, uh, you know, for, for a customer experience or booking experience. So uh, we, we kept the books open. I didn't imagine it to, to snowball as it did, but... I sort of wanted people to be able to book for a birthday or an anniversary. And if that was eight months away or nine months away, then then so be it. We're always open on certain days. And, uh, yeah, I had no idea that the bookings would expand as they did. And as such, their, their sort of value increasing. At one point, there was like a black market for, for reservations with us. That's like proper luxury um, luxury trading, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, I want to ask you a bit about your work. I'm going to get onto the ingredients because I'm really fascinated by how you select what you're mm. going to use. But what's the most exciting thing? What drives you? Well, um, I think being better than what we were the day before is the main one. Uh, I love the process of coming up with dishes. It's a bit like, a, you know, the clothes designer coming up with a new new outfit. That walk for me, I see it in the same light writing a new song um yeah we've got limited number of of tools and of ingredients so you know creating anything and say new or evolved potentially rather than new there's really little that's new these days um or things that feel fresh is uh is always compelling for me i think that's, that's the most fun side of the job and then the nitty-gritty side is making sure that the execution is done as well as it can be on a daily basis. So I guess there's two sides to the job. One is the creative role, and then the other is the the more military uh, uh, logisticals, uh, checking prep, checking execution. Um, I say there's two sides to it that are both very different. You have hundreds of covers each day. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you maintain that? How do you maintain the consistency of quality? with every dish that goes out yeah i mean precise recipes precise specs so the you know the grand weight of the fish where we get that fish from how often it's delivered um seasoning for example we brine most of our proteins in a six percent salinity brine for a certain amount of time so that means that any meat or fish is going to have a a seasoning level that i'm that i'm happy with because it's not based on john or gary or Fiona or whoever it is, their their touch or intuition is based on gram weight and timings. 
Similarly with the cooking process, uh, a lot of the stuff is done at certain temperatures until a certain core temperature is reached. Or for, for vegetables, again, just use, using a timer, uh, all our recipes are done to the gram. So whether I make it or whether a commie chef makes it, it should be as close as possible to the, to the end result that I'm looking for. All these things are tested twice a day before each service and when they're made. So for example, if a dish is a, if a component of a dish is a puree, that'll be tested when it's made, then it'll be blast chilled. It'll be vacuum packed and labeled with the person who made it and the person who checked it. And then they'll be tested again before the service and then again before the dinner service. So there's layers of uh, protocol, I guess, that, that mean nothing can slip through the net in principle. <laughs> Ultimately, it comes down to, you know, my palate, or my head chef's palate or sous chef's palate. I'm just thinking about the complexity. How do you come up with the recipe? Oh, uh, yeah, starts off blank piece of paper that soon becomes very uh, laden with fat stains and smudges and what <laughs> as, as we write them down. But uh, if a dish is an evolution of a pre-existing one or might use component parts of other dishes I've used in the past, because you reach a certain point and I think, well, this is the best possible type of dressing for this thing or or way to cook a run of bean or whatever it may be. So yeah, I've got a massive sort of portfolio of of existing sub recipes, but often it might just be, well, I want to want to cook something completely new. Um, and yeah, I mean it is literally a blank piece of paper with then the thought processes either what do I what do I want the customer to experience? What do I what flavors do I want to combine? So I mean, I think the things that we worked on recently, for example, was uh, in pastry was a uh, uh, I wanted to do a dessert that looked like a retro glazed donut that was pink and had sort of flecks of different colors. Something, I yeah, potentially that's almost a little bit garish, but refine it. So we made so that, that was the starting point, and then we made a donut parfait. So we soaked cream. Uh, soak some donuts in cream so we infuse the cream uh, we whipped that cream and made a parfait that we added the donut kind of porridge to and also some fresh donut and it ended up actually being very light and not too sweet so we froze that in a ring mold then glazed it in a in a sort of baby pink glaze again not, not too sweet uh, we made a blueberry compote and we made a a milky blue oolong tea milkshake. So cold infused it so for, for low tannins. And when you we made this dish where it's the, the blueberry compote on the bottom, this uh, oolong milkshake that's really almost slightly fragrant uh, white froth on top. And then the glazed donut parfait we sit on top of that so it's like having donut with the blueberry jam and the, and the, and the fresh milk the whole thing's really light and ethereal like i said it, it's pastel pink with the little silver baubles on very minimalist and, and charming so it's it's a yeah that, that was one you know one example then the next one we're going to do on the bread basket on the savory side wanted to try doing a bread bun uh kind of baked in a vine leaf almost so it's Again, you you've got this this leaf on the outside with, with a little bun in the middle, um, 
And again, hopefully the leaf crisps up a little bit, might be lightly pickled beforehand. And then obviously having that with the hot butter, sorry, the the soft butter rather. Um, So yeah, Ed's always working on on different uh, flavor combinations. It could be textural, it could be something botanical that I want to capture up. Yeah, like I said, the vine leaf with the bread. there's no sort of set structure and that's the joy of it i've seen pictures of that donut dessert <laughs> it looks mm. uh, it looks amazing oh great yeah yeah because no, there's really. a pink one and a blue one isn't there there is yeah 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 just a bit of fun if it's a table for two i couldn't decide which which color i like most and there's no it's quick to do both so yeah it's just it's playful it's nice to have food that you know some of the foods repaired back and and an ode to the suppliers then you know other dishes like that are just a little bit more fun i mean do you think of yourself as an innovator and alchemist um yeah i, I wouldn't i wouldn't think of myself as that because my, my day-to-day life is is quite long hours and quite hard work so there's there's no time to sort of for any you know self-adulation in that regard i'd say more yeah innovator definitely but yeah, probably more than anything, craftsman or, or sort of patriarch. There's... I'm just thinking about your the what I've read about your work history, starting you know at Le Manoir de Quatre Saisons and going on to uh, Hibiscus, amongst others. How has that influenced you? Because again, I'm going down a two track road here. One about the influences of places you've worked in, and then the other about you as being a craftsman and a craftsman naturally passing their skills down to others yeah i mean you you're influenced by everywhere you work really whether it's something that you like or something you don't um well i think uh you know like like anyway you take the good and park the bad uh, and they'll be same for people that work for me there'll be things that they like more than others and that's that's completely completely fine um as a young chef i completely subjugated myself to to my career, so anyway, to really get anywhere. And when I worked at Le Manoir Catches On, I covered every section, started off as the lowest position in the kitchen and worked my way up. And that was really the best schooling I could have ever had. And then after that, you know, worked, yeah, just did stages at places like Nome Royal Fat Dark and worked more briefly for other restaurants because I'd had the grounding and that was just seeing maybe their more idiosyncratic or personalized approaches to food. Um, and like I said, there's things that you things that you like, things that you don't. But I think it's nice to have have a food style. I've always wanted to have worked in these places. I never wanted to feel kind of derivative thereof. I mean there's obviously there is there's influence there, but also it's you know when when you're in the kitchen on a daily basis and surrounded by the guys here is it's quite an insular place almost. So um, though that formed my training, I think from, I guess, the last 10 years from when I opened up Daboo to now, I'm not saying you've got tunnel vision because obviously you're aware of what's going on around you, but it's also quite healthy not to be overly uh, um, aware of what other people are doing because it helps you to be quite singular in, in your approach. How different is Hyde to Debu? Um, yeah, I, I'd 
pretty different on a, on a number of levels. I mean, stylistically, to begin with, it, uh, Debut was very anti-establishment, looked like an All Saints store, and there was no funding uh, really behind it, so we just made the best of what we've got. They say that uh, was it lack of resources is the, uh, the heartbeat of innovation, so um, <laughs> that was really true to us. Uh, we didn't really have the money to make it look anything other than a, a building site. But to be honest, that brutalist approach really worked. It was what I liked. I hadn't been done that much at the time to that level of sort of uh, minimalism. And also, I think having a really feminine uh, cooking style or plating style jumped out even more so the contrast between that and the, the concrete floor or the bare wood tables, or whatever can, uh, was really striking. Um, Hyde is more a barefoot luxury. It's more finessed. It, it needs to be, it's in, it's in Mayfair. I think both, uh, have a sense of being the right thing for, for the time that they're in. You know, Debut was great, but it, it was a moment of time. And it's something that, you know, I probably would have potentially grown out of. Um, and the chance to do Hyde was very compelling. It was a chance to reinvent, chance to do something completely different. And I really relished the challenge. And yeah, it's, I mean, it it is very different in some ways, but I think there's a, they both restaurants share an independent spirit, a conviviality, and obviously my my cooking style. But am I right in kind of thinking that Hyde has a much closer interpretation in the way it's designed to the food you serve? Um, it's almost a little bit the other way around. I mean, everything is sort of predicated on on the view over Green Park. So it's an organic luxury, a barefoot luxury, embracing some some natural elements. So that we took that thread and, and played with it in the botanicals that are sort of concealed in some of the plasterwork in the wall, um, you know, in just across the board, really. We sort of want to bring some of the outside, outside in, uh, whether it's, you know, prints of leaves or the, the grain of the wood or whatever it may be. And then again, I'll try to have that in the food. So even just a little nods, we do a nice lolly with branches from trees from Green Park that's still got, got some leaves in. Uh, we even had cutters made with the leaves that you get in the park. So uh, it's mainly uh, maple, beech, birch and oak in Green Park. So we had leaf cutters made for some of the desserts. So we do, we do a meal for you. So just again, a play on a thousand leaves. Uh, so it's made with, with a leaf, the leaf cutter. Some pity fours, uh, again, made with these leaf cutters. Um we did little marzipan acorn um, as a pity for. Uh, it's like a hazelnut marzipan. It wasn't wasn't that sort of sickly synthetic tasting one. Um, and then, yeah, there's various little little nods to the park uh, or to the to nature without drifting into kind of pointless gimmickry or sort of childish touches. Do you forage? 
I don't. I have been in the past. I've got two young kids now, so so uh, I don't have the time. There's, there's people that do it a lot better than me. I went I went on the trip last year, which was lovely, um, and it's good to reconnect with suppliers. So that was with with our forager, um, and then once a year I'll visit our fish supplier or you know the butcher. Or I think it's it's really important to keep visiting growers and suppliers because it's a great reminder to keep things simple you know the food at the end of the day you know it's as good as the ingredients that you use and it should be showcasing them so you can drift a little bit in your head and end up doing sort of technical things or more theatrical things but visiting these suppliers is it keeps you honest as a chef tell us a bit about the ingredients because your cooking is particularly showcases the ingredients in a way that maybe others don't yeah i mean i'd, I'd like to think so and that we, we always look for the most sympathetic way to elevate an ingredient that's the starting point so a lot of the fish will be steamed rather than you know aggressively fried in lots of butter you know um red meat cooked over charcoal again to bring out the sort of caveman uh in everyone and then, uh, yeah, a lot of the times it's very simple preparations with not too many ingredients behind each one. So you get that purity of flavor that, that we're trying to harness. Um, so I think that, you know, the, the, there's not lots, you know, lots of fat or vinegars or these things. It's just little spikes or counterpoints um, to elevate the core, core ingredient. And, um, so yeah, for, for me, it's it's not how much flavour can you, how many different flavours can you combine or put into something. It's how much can you make it taste of itself, and then combine that just with a couple of other, you know, delicious uh, accompaniments, and and that's your dish done, really. And that's the craftsmanship. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. I make it sound easier than it is. <laughs> otherwise, otherwise, everyone would be doing. Yeah, well, exactly. I mean, if we could all do it. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I'd be out of jobs. How do you gauge the freshness of an agree- of an ingredient? You know, of, is there kind of this um, tactile feedback? Yeah, I mean, when um, when the goods come in, that's when you you kind of win the day in the morning, che- checking all the goods, getting getting things sent back if they're not right. But in general, we work with a lot of the same suppliers and and they know how demanding we are and also because we're i've been using them for a decade plus now some for even 20 years yeah they they only send us the the best of what what they've got a lot of things you might need to order in advance um you know tomatoes and fruit for example ripeness is key so even our breakfast tomato we we get them in uh you know a week in advance that um, to what we need them we have things growing the whole time it looks like almost like a uh, a greenhouse in the kitchen so we have pea shoots growing we have a couple of hydroponic systems um, like I said we have uh, a lot of fruit ripening we'll get it in advance and then yeah with our suppliers for example our pumpkin supplier he he actually measures sweetness of his pumpkins with a refractometer so he gauges the sugar content of them. So that's the sort of level of supplier that we're we're working with. Um, and certain people grow things just for us, and 
I think as um, yeah, the longer that you you're cooking for and working with suppliers for it, the more it becomes a a partnership. And there's a lot of empathy. Um, you know, we're completely dependent on each other. Um, so yeah, those relationships become very rich over the years because you are so dependent on them. So they become friends over time. So that the dynamic changes very much. But there's this idea of community and luxury becoming much more prom- prominent. Mm-hmm. And what you're describing is is exactly that. Am I right? Yeah, I think you know, luxury. When people think of it, was you know, it used to be maybe explicit opulence, and now it's you know it's more maybe something a little bit more spiritual, a bit you know a richness, you know that way where um, people are feeling better about the decisions that they're making. Um, and that might might be from, you know, being more uh, considerate to the environment or having something that is more bespoke or more, you know, uh, done on a smaller scale. So yeah, I think, you know, obviously luxury is a different thing to, to different people, but yeah, I think that craftsmanship is increasingly uh you know, considered luxury because it's probably less and less people that want to get into cooking that want to become, you know, world-class cobbler or dressmaker or whatever it may be. These things take years and years to to be good at. And I think without sounding too condescending, but if some younger people want a get-rich-quick route or want immediate gratification, you know, these hard yards aren't a path to get that so i think the fact there's less people dedicating themselves to crafts whether it's cooking dressmaking whatever it may be yeah that makes that 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 craft that that product even yeah even more more of a luxury what we we're saying earlier about passing the craft down i mean mm. it's those things are critical really yeah. in you know, in the future of most things, like you've said, you know, whether you're making a dress or you're making um, a fine piece of fish. Yeah, that is the best thing for for me, having a young chef that's keen and wants to know more and wants to be the best version of themselves every day. That's, uh, you know, if you have a kitchen full of those people, then then my job suddenly becomes a lot easier. Yeah, and everybody's food is that much more delicious. Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. (laughs) Do you have a special knife? Uh, yeah, I've got, I've got one special. I mean, you get people that spend a fortune on knives. I mean, good knives do do make a difference uh, in terms of your your workmanship. I do have one uh, particularly sort of special one, and then the rest of them are I sort of have the same. I buy the same knives over and over again because I like that one for filleting, I like that one for serrating, I like that one for for pairing or whatever. And yeah, it's probably got about. Uh, 15 in total you don't need i mean i know that that's obviously a decent amount but there's you know you can buy you know you could literally just empty your bank account on, on fancy knives so you need to you need to draw the line somewhere if the knife is very very sharp does that make a difference to the what happens to the molecular structure of the tomato um yeah i mean the sharper knife has causes less bruising or tear it's a cleaner cut yeah, the, the the main difference is whether you have a European or or Japanese style uh, sharpening. 
the European shop on both sides and the, the Oriental way is just to sharpen one. Um, and that leads to a slightly different blade structure. Um, so I, I, I have both in my collections. Some are, some are for Oriental, more for carving, and then the Western ones are more just for regular regular chopping. I'm just I'm really interested in in the whole in the whole journey, mm, you know, yeah. from the grower, uh, you know, it's picked, you sourcing, you finding your supplies, you building that relationship. It gets the the food gets to the kitchen, and then there's all the prep, and that you know the. I suppose it's the skill in being able to pass all of those stages to get to the end result, which is the food yeah. on the table. And yeah. every one of those stages makes a difference. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I think we're, I don't think we're, we're uh, expensive for what we offer, but yeah, people look at a tasting menu, says 150 pounds, but, the man hours involved, if you're going to make those dishes start to finish, it's probably two days work, um, you know, let alone the ingredient cost and, the, you know, the wear and tear on the kitchen. So it's, uh, yeah, I think sometimes with with food that uh, people think of the ingredient price, but don't appreciate the, the labour cost that goes into it. The better I've been thinking that the better ingredient you can, the best ingredient you can buy is the one you should buy because it definitely makes a difference to what you eat. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I agree. And they don't always have to be expensive. You can get great carrots, great lettuce, great grains. Yeah, you can make a delicious plate of food with humble ingredients. Um, but yeah, buying the best versions of those humble ingredients and then treating yourself to something at the weekend or whatever it may be. Um, yeah, I think that's, that's the, the, the way to go. Yeah. I was chatting to Paul A. Young um, about his chocolates and mm -hmm. he was saying, even if you just buy one of my chocolates, mm. that's enough. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, agreed. Agreed. That's interesting. And also I was, re I was reading about the olive oil you use. Mm. So, yeah, I mean, uh, there's a few different types. Some we have infused with fig leaves. Uh, some we have uh, from a grower in Portugal where it's a black olive oil. Uh, usually it's, it's green olives, um, but the black olive oil, this this one almost tastes like tapenade. It's incredibly fruity and, and Mediterranean tasting. Um, and then we use some from uh, Provence, which is less aggressive it's fruitier lighter uh so yeah again quite a few different different varieties and then we use virgin rapeseed oil as well obviously from uh grown on these shores you get amazing smoked rapeseed oil too so yeah all these uh products that add yeah they're different sort of colors for me to paint with really how do you go about extracting the best flavor from the simplest ingredients Oh, often doing as little to them as possible. Um, it's yeah, it's just having the confidence. Whether it's strawberries, you know, we just maybe just you know season them very lightly, tiny bit of icing sugar and lemon juice, or maybe we just vacuum them. Um, that removes the air, so it concentrates the flesh. You get a beautiful color as well. Um, serving them whole uh, or in big pieces, so you get to appreciate that fragrance that texture imagine that same strawberry cooked you're not going to have that 
like the nuanced fragrance it's gonna be much jammier imagine it chopped into 100 pieces you're not going to have that burst of juice in your mouth so so similarly purees infusions juices soups broths i think all these things you can harness the flavor of an ingredient and when we do these it's usually just water a little bit of salt a little bit of sugar i mean for example when everyone in above at hide comes the first offering they have you get uh or part of it is called bread and broth it's a homemade bread some whipped salt and butter and then the broth is generally uh mushroom and lemon verbena this is mushrooms with a pinch of salt some water we steam them in the bag to keep all the flavor. And then we, uh, there's a little bit of lemon juice and a two-minute infusion with lemon verbena just before serving. So it's got that sherbet freshness. So five five things. There's no sweating onion. There's no Madeira. There's no you know, chicken stock. There's no you know, katsubushi or whatever. It's, it's mushroom and verbena. And so it's that, that approach that I think uh, hopefully elevates us or differentiates us. Can you describe the connection you have to your ingredients? Oh, I guess at the end of the day, it's, it's I guess, sort of love and sensitivity. I, when I look at them, almost feel a sense of responsibility as well. You see amazing produce, you want to... You want to do it justice and you want to share your love of it with other people. And you want them to see it through your eyes so they can enjoy it and get the same pleasure that I get from it. And it's the same way as if you've just watched a brilliant film or heard an amazing album, you want to tell your mates. So I guess that is the connection. And then that means when I'm prepping them or handling them, I'm respecting them. I'm not being heavy-handed with my seasoning or how I cut them. There's a yeah, level of care and consideration that goes into them uh, or goes into the into the process. So I think it's also part of what we do, you know, at Hyde is that that's a, there's a sensitivity to the cooking. It's not big flavours or trying to be clever it's it's really be us being subservient to, to the produce and and uh every dish should feel like an ode to the farmer to the fisherman to what they've produced i'm just thinking i'm typically a really fast eater but i think <laughs> <Me too. laughs> but when you kind of eating your food it slows you down a bit because you're savoring the flavor yeah yeah, yeah 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 i mean i'm Similarly, enjoy it in a very different way. It's funny. I I taste the food in the kitchen regularly, and when I do so, it's actually very very analytical. And then when I eat it as a customer, that's where the pleasure comes in, the enjoyment comes in. And you're right, you're you're savouring things in a way that, yeah. You know, when I taste food in the kitchen, I'm dressed in my apron and you know chef shoes. It's bright light. Uh, you know, it's not, you know, the, the setting does make a difference. And well, I think, I think um, I'm always flattered if people remember a certain aspect of a dish or a dish in particular. And 
with 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 hide, especially above a hide, we want really want people to linger. We we want people to have one of these sort of little three or four hour windows or experiences where they feel that life can't be any better. And when you're you're having a great meal, it it really can't. Yeah, sea bass for me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. I want to ask you a little bit about sustainability. Mm-hmm. Uh, we read so much about the impact, our impact on farming, you know, whether mm-hmm. it's almonds and birds or almonds and bees, for example. Yeah. I was just wondering what your kind of take is on um, sustainability and how you address issues around sustainability. Yeah. yeah, I mean, we try and use you know local ingredients wherever possible. We use Secrets Farm in Milford. We use a company in Norfolk. Cornwall. We try and use kind of British wherever possible um, for most of the, the meats as well. Um, certain things come come from abroad just because I mean they're you know, pigeons, the ones from France, you can't get as good you know, anywhere else or in, in this country, I believe. Um, we do import things from as far away as Japan, though it's you know, it's one of these things where I guess I see my role as if people are like, you know like the food or educate themselves about the food then there'll be a level of uh yeah responsibility towards how those ingredients come about we use wild farm grain there are uh these old-fashioned sort of plowing techniques and farming techniques so they're they're, that's for for flour uh so we're just in the process of switching all our flour well wherever possible to wild farm there's certain for example, you need a certain Manitoba from Canada for high protein for certain things, but other things where we can use wild farm, we do so. Um, there are obviously restaurants that are more sustainable than us, but equally, yeah, we need it, we need to serve, you know, certain sort of uh, a certain level of of quality. So if we can reach that level. And use more and more sustainable farmers than than we do so. And even in the last few years, we've used a company called Crate to Plate. So whereas all our salad leaves before were, you know, from uh other farms or mixed. Now they're they're grown in London, they're delivered to us twice a week in a container. We keep that container, give it back to them when they come with the next lot. Um, so there's no, you know, sort of lots of cardboard or whatever being constantly recycled. Uh, all our food waste is goes to make compost. Um, so there's things that we're doing. Um, there's a limit based on our square footage and location that you know be not nice to do more in some ways, but equally we need to be a viable business. You know, you've got the ingredient side which you're doing our best out within the realm of what we serve, but equally for the staffing side that's another area of sustainability that i think we're hopefully doing doing a good job of they're all just as important as each other i think yeah yeah you can't you can't have uh without the staff or the ingredients you mark us you need you need both yeah. yeah great to have all the ingredients but what are we going to do with it all? Yeah, yeah exactly ollie thanks for chatting i just um it's been fantastic um and i can't yeah, wait to pleasure. come back and well come back yeah. yeah, I can't wait to venture forth to hide. It's not far from where I live. So, okay, um, perfect, perfect. I want to end by asking you what your luxury is. Oh, it's my luxury would be 
would be free time and free headspace at the moment so much going on i mean at hide we've got outside events we've got two young kids i'm getting my house renovated uh you know there's 34 chefs a day different menus on different floors we've got hideaway the coffee shop cooking at twickenham this weekend maybe outside catering for the big client the following week there's always something happening so yeah time and headspace would be my, my two luxuries well there you go i mean that is a luxury isn't it <laughs> being able to sit down and think yeah yeah exactly exactly simple pleasures and then other luxuries just for me it's it's the the simple one it's like a nice coffee good bread like the daily small pleasures I think are more important than uh, you know, for me like having a you know a Gucci raincoat or whatever. I'm not you know, uh, yeah. It's the daily, yeah, the, the daily simple pleasures and some luxuries can't be bought. You know, niceness, manners, all these things. Yeah, it's, it's maybe the best luxuries are the ones that you can't buy. Oh, that's a brilliant way to end. <laughs> there we go. Thank you so much for joining us. Absolute pleasure, Sean. Cheers for having me. Thanks, Oli, for joining us. Thank you to our partners, Intellect Books, and to you for listening. Catch up on missed episodes or listen again to your favourite ones by subscribing to the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast on your favourite listening platform. Join us next time on the In Pursuit of Luxury podcast.